morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see so many of you on a three-day weekend. It's a pleasure to worship with you and hear you sing and be in the Word together. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to continue to make our way through Genesis this morning. You can actually turn to Genesis 15. That's where we'll be this morning. We have a glorious text in Scripture. Well, we always have a glorious text, but this one is foundational to so many of the things we understand in the Bible. And we are only going to tackle the first six verses this morning because there's so much to unpack here. And next week, we'll continue to make our way through this chapter. So Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living and holy and gracious God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we are so prone to fear and doubt even though you've given us every reason to trust you and to trust your word. You've shown us your steadfast love in sending your son to die for us, eliminating any doubt we should have, but we still struggle, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to see, as Abram does in this passage, that you are our shield, our great reward. You're our refuge and strength. Lord, help us to remember that we don't have to fear because you are always with us and you keep your promises to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Have you ever noticed this pattern in your Christian life where you have these great moments of faithfulness and blessing, and joy, and often those great moments are followed with some of the worst moments of despair, and fear, and doubt, and even falling into terrible sin. Have you ever had those mountaintop experiences in the Christian life, and then they're followed by some of the lowest lows in your entire life? I'm sure most of us have had this. If you're an adult, you probably have experienced this, even in just the simple things of the world. When you get to those moments when you accomplish your dream, 
You finally get your dream job or your dream home or you finally get to retire after so many years of work. And then you realize, wow, my dream job, my coworkers are pretty sinful. It really is hard to be patient with my husband or my wife when I'm around them all the time. Or that dream home I just got still has a lot of issues. It's going to take a lot of my money and time to get it to be my dream home. And you just have this letdown shortly after this great moment. Or maybe, especially as Christians, you feel this, you experience this with your battle with sin. When you've been battling sin for so long and there's this particular sin that you finally make progress in. You're finally having some victory. And slowly and suddenly pride begins to creep into your heart. And you even get to the point where you feel, you know what, it's kind of impressive that I'm actually doing what's right. And you even get to the point where you look down on other people who are struggling with the same sin that you're just starting to claim victory over. I don't know if you've been through this, but when you realize it, you think, come on, are you kidding me? I can go from this place of righteousness and honor the Lord, and then all of a sudden this pride just seems to come from nowhere, sneak into my heart. Now, kids, I'm sure you've experienced something like this too. When you've been let down after doing something right, after trying to honor the Lord. Maybe you come to church and you hear the gospel preach, you hear the word of the Lord, and you're convicted by the way that you treat your family. And you're determined to honor the Lord at home. And so you go home. You're praying that you would be faithful and you start cleaning up as quick as you can, even without being asked. You listen to your mom and dad. You obey as quick as you can. You even let your younger brother pick things first, right? To take that snack or that dessert first. Pick the game that you're going to do together. But then you start to realize, wait, no one's noticing that I'm being good. No one's noticing that I'm actually trying to honor the Lord. No one's saying, good job, or what a blessing, or thank you so much for serving us like this. In fact, you start to figure that your little brother or sister is starting to take advantage of the situation, starting to take what's theirs and leave you with nothing, and it's starting to get very frustrating, and you start to wonder, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it to honor the Lord with my life? It seems like it's not really paying off. It seems like it's really costing me. You have these great moments of conviction followed by moments of frustration. Have you experienced things like this? I'm sure most of us have. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, this is the process we go through, isn't it? Well, you need to be encouraged because you're not alone in this struggle. In fact, it's many saints throughout Scripture are on the spiritual roller coasters from the highest of spiritual highs to some of the lowest lows of their life. One example I could think of is Elijah from Mount Carmel. You remember that story where Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal and he calls down fire from heaven and it just torches this wet offering and then he calls the whole nation of Israel to repent. In this amazing moment in 1 Kings 18, we would expect his faith to be so strong, to be so invincible after this, that he would be basically fearless. And then in 1 Kings 19, the very next chapter, Queen Jezebel finds out what happened. And she goes after him to kill him. And Elijah just falls apart, it seems. 
runs off into the desert, despairing and doubting, saying, Lord, I am all alone. I'm the only faithful one left. Just kill me now. Just wipe me out before she gets to me, essentially. You look at moments like that and you think, wow, it is so easy to go from great victory to great despair and doubt. And that's exactly what we have here with Abram in chapter 15. Abram has been enjoying some tremendous victories over the last few chapters. If you remember, all the way back in chapter 10, he had his first great victory when he left his homeland trusting the Lord, not even knowing where God would lead him. He trusted and stepped out in faith to follow the Lord. He faltered a little bit in in Egypt when he lied about his wife, but he quickly repented. In chapter 13, he repented and trusted the Lord again with Lot. In this incredible moment when he said, here, here, have anything you want in the promised land. You take your pick. I don't have to micromanage. I don't have to make sure I get what's mine because I know the Lord will provide for me. I know the Lord will keep his promise no matter what. Incredible moment of faith. And then it's followed up in chapter 14 when Abram takes on this unstoppable army of those four eastern kings and he takes them out with only 318 men, runs them off from the promised land, and then returning from war. With the spoils to war, he decides not to take anything from that wicked king in Sodom, but to entrust himself with the Lord, with this priest, Melchizedek, because he knows that God is his treasure. Abram's been a wonderful picture of persevering faith so far. And I think the very first part of this verse, verse 1 in chapter 15, when it says, after these things, is referring back to all those victories. All those great moments of faith. Because then, after these things in chapter 15, the dust is settled from those victories. And despair, doubt, fear especially, begins to set in for Abram. I believe Abram is essentially almost second-guessing his decisions here. Even some of those great moments of faith. He might be asking himself questions like, can God really be trusted? Can I trust this God to keep his word? Is he really going to come through on all of those promises? And God graciously, patiently draws near to this despairing saint and reaffirms the promises again. He goes over the same promises to answer Abram's questions. And he turns Abram's fear to faith. That's what we see happen in this passage. As God reminds Abram, yes, I can be trusted. Don't trust your circumstances. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in me, Abram, because I will keep my word. See, that's the point of the passage for us, too. We need to trust in the Lord, as Hebrews 11.11 says, because he who promised is faithful. That's our hope in this passage. And that's what I don't want you to leave here today without knowing. As we walk through these six verses, I want to draw your attention to three things, three parts here. So here's our three points for today. First, there's a declaration from God. God declares his name and his promise to Abram in verse 1. Then second, we see Abram's doubts in verses 2 through 3. We see him wrestling with those promises. Then third, we'll see God display his promise. He declares his promise first, then he displays his promise in this glorious picture in the stars. So we have God declaring, Abram doubting, 
And then God displaying his promise again. So let's look at verse 1 as God declares his name for Abram. Verse 1. After these things, these great victories, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Now I think we have to stop right there because we need to stop and celebrate God's goodness already. God's kindness in this moment. We don't even know what fear Abram has, essentially. We can make some guesses, and we will in a little bit. We don't know his real struggle here. But what we do know is that God doesn't sit back and wait for Abram to come to him. God doesn't sit back to get to the very last moment when Abram is desperate. He draws near to Abram in this moment to care for his suffering and struggling servant. Proving already he's not just the covenant-making God, he's the covenant-keeping God. He's the God that won't break a bruised reed, that won't quench a faintly burning wick. He's the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, seeking out even his weak and weary sheep. And you need to know this before we even go through the rest of this passage. This is not just Abram's God. This is our God. Our shepherd. This is how God loves us. We already know that because he's already done this. He sought us out when we were his enemies. When we were still sinners, he sent his son to live and die and raise from the dead in our place to free us from sin and death forever. And even now, the Lord draws near to us. Jesus draws near to us through the word and through the sacraments giving us these same words. You know, these words, do not fear. This is the first time they show up in the Bible, but they are all over the place, aren't they? More than 300 times. And Jesus uses these words often in the Gospels to encourage his weary disciples. He says things like Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, this is our Lord. And as we see God extend his grace and mercy and patience to Abram, know that God does this to us as well. He does this for us in Christ. Now you may be asking yourself, well, what exactly then is Abram afraid of? I mean, this man just took on these giant armies with 380 men. That doesn't sound like someone that's afraid of anything, at least in my opinion. Doesn't sound like he should be afraid of, of anything at all. But here's the thing you need to realize he just made some terrible enemies. He surprised them at night. He overtook them at night and ran them out of the country. Now he's probably worried that they realize, well, wait a minute, he's just a small group. We need to regroup and come back and take revenge. We need to come back and wipe Abram off the map. They're able to do that. They're that, that many people. Plus, he just refused a great chance to get right with the king of Sodom. When he came back from war, he basically insulted the king of Sodom by not taking his reward, not taking his plunder, and not making him his ally, his shield. I think Abram might be even regretting how he trusted the Lord in the last few chapters, thinking things like, well, I just put a target on my back. Now none of these nations are going to help me. I just gave up my reward. I gave up the plunder that I could use to kind of bargain with. I have no protection. I have nothing to work with. I am going to be in big trouble if these men come back. 
And that's when God draws near to declare, not just his promise, he does declare that, but God begins by declaring who he is. He says, Abram, you need to understand who I am. He says, fear not, verse 1, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Abram, you don't need Sodom to protect you. You don't need a big army. I just showed you you don't need a big army to defeat these men. Remember what Melchizedek just said? I'm the one that delivered you. Actually, that verse in chapter 14, verse 20, that says God's the deliverer, that's the same word for shield here. The same essential word in the Hebrew there. God's saying, I have been your shield, Abram. I just was your shield. I'm still your shield. If those kings come back, I can and I will deliver you. So don't fear, Abram. You know what? This is exactly what we need to hear over and over again when we're afraid, when we're worried, isn't it? Kids, I know your parents probably said something like this at some time, and I'm not trying to judge you parents if you've said this. I've said this, so I'm kind of admitting this here. I know your parents have probably said something like, you know what? There's nothing to be afraid of. There's really no good reason to be afraid at all. There's no reason to fear at all. Because the reality is, that's not simply true, because we live in a broken, sinful, evil world, full of things to be afraid of, full of people and events to be afraid of. But kids, you know why we don't need to fear? Because God is our shield. God is our protector. Yes, our enemies are strong. They're scary, but God is stronger. God is wiser. God is closer to us than anything that can do us harm. He is our shield. He is our protector. And he is for us in Christ. That's what we need to know. More than don't be afraid, we need to know that God is our shield. And that dispels the fear that's in our hearts, isn't it? And God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, Abram, I'm your shield. He also says this at the end of verse 1. He says, your reward shall be very great. Now, I think there's actually a translation issue here. That's a true statement. His reward will be great. And we're going to see that reward in just a couple verses in the stars, that picture there. But this translation, I think, is not as accurate to what the Hebrew says. This is the way that the ESV, the New American Standard goes, but the NIV and the King James translates it like this. Listen to what it says. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Not just your reward will be really great. I am your reward, Abram. I'm what you really need. The reason why I think this is true is because this fits with the way that God goes over the promise the next time. In chapter 17, when God talks to Abram and goes over the promise once again, God says this, I will be God to you, Abram, and to your offspring after you. I will give you the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. That becomes the motto of God's people throughout the rest of Scripture. In the very next book, in Exodus Chapter 6, verse 7, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Think about the Psalms. Over and over, struggling, wrestling with doubt, 
where do they almost always end up? They always seem to go to God and get great comfort and strength that he's our God. We just prayed he's our Father. Think of Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see what God's telling Abram? He's saying, Abram, I am yours and you are mine. Look, eternal fellowship and communion with God is what the covenant is all about. That's what God is telling Abram. That's the essence of the covenant here. Abram, you don't need the spoils of war. That's not your great reward. You have something so much better. You have me, Abram, your protector, your provider, your God. And I will never leave you or forsake you. That is your great reward, Abram. Again, I hope you can see the incredible kindness and mercy, and patience with God. I don't know if you're anything like me, but in light of the last few chapters, part of me thinks, well, God should have rebuked Abram here. At least if he's anything like me, or like some of us, I'm sure, God probably should have said something like this. Abram, have you not been paying attention? Did you not see what I just did with those armies, those kings? Did you not see what I did in Pharaoh? Have I ever failed to provide for you? Have I ever failed to reward you or protect you? Why in the world would you be afraid, Abram? Look what I've already done. God doesn't go there. God also doesn't say this, Abram. This is the fourth time we've had to go over this promise. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. You ever said those words to your kids? Why aren't you getting this by now? You should know this by now, Abram. Why are you so slow to have faith, Abram? God doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke Abram at all. Instead, he's incredibly patient with his struggling servant, and he lovingly reminds him of who he is and what he's already promised and what he's already done and what he will continue to do for Abram incredible mercy. How would Abram respond? Well, Abram begins to doubt. It's actually really interesting. This is the first time we see Abram talk to God, respond to God, and the first thing he says out of his mouth is a complaint. It's a doubt. Look what he says, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Now, the translator there is helping us out with that word childless. The actual, the Hebrew word there is really fascinating to me. Literally, it says, I'm walking around stripped. Like I'm walking around naked. That's the picture here. I feel exposed. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed, God. Why? Why would Abram feel embarrassed after all that God has already done for him? Well, the translators are helping us out there. It has to do with childlessness. If you remember, it's only a couple chapters ago for us, chapter 12 and 13, God promised that Abram would have offspring. But for Abram, it's been maybe a decade or so. It's been a long time. And God has kept so many of those promises from 12 and 13, but he hasn't kept this one. He hasn't given him an heir, an offspring. And the clock is ticking. Abram's, Sarah, they're in their 80s by now. Abram especially is in his 80s. 
and he's not getting any younger. They've never been able to have kids, but every day that goes by, that doesn't get any easier. Most of Abram's family or friends, most people his age, are grandparents by now. Maybe even great-grandparents right now. And here's Abram, the one whose name literally means exalted father. That's what Abram means. The exalted father is not a father at all yet. And every day that passes, it looks less and less likely that it's going to happen. On Romans 4, verse 19, Paul describes what's going on in Abram's head. Jason read part of that passage this morning. But listen to what Paul says is going on in Abram's head. Abram considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Abram's looking at himself like he's looking in the mirror going, this is not happening, Lord. No child is coming from me. And then he considered Sarah, who was also barren, and saying, it's not coming from her either. She's never been able to have kids, and now she's past the age where she can actually have kids. Abram's looking around, he's going, Lord, do you see what I'm seeing? It's going to take a miracle, a complete miracle for you to keep this promise now. And every day that goes by, it looks harder and harder. That's why Sarah laughs at the idea. In just a couple chapters, Abram's not laughing here. He's lamenting. He's struggling. He's doubting. And he offers up a way. He offers up a plan. Lord, is this the way? You want to keep your promise? Look at the middle of verse 2. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Lord, you've kept so many of these promises. You've been faithful, but you haven't kept this one. You haven't given me an heir. The closest thing I've ever had to an heir was Lot. He was like an adoptive son to me, and he ran off with Sodom. And all I'm left with now is this foreign servant in my house, one born in my house. He's just a steward in my house. And if I die today, and God is looking more and more likely that's coming soon, then he's going to get everything. He's my only heir. You know, Abram's wrestling more with just childlessness here. He knows if he remembers the promise, back in chapter 12, verse 2, he said, all the families of the earth will be blessed by this offspring. So what I really think Abram's wrestling with here is not just barrenness, childlessness, or family struggles. I think Abram is wrestling with the eternal purposes and plan of God here. Lord, is this really your grand plan to bless the whole world? Is this really the the seed, the offspring you promised? The one from the woman in Genesis 3.15 who would crush Satan? Is this it? Is it going to be Eleazar? Is this really the gospel that you preached to me, which Paul says happened in Galatians 3.8? Or is this it? I'm struggling. Now, before we get to God's answer, God's response, I want to stop for a sec. I think this struggle can be misinterpreted, misunderstood in many different ways. I want you to realize, Abram is struggling. He's despairing. He's doubting. He's complaining. But it's not sinful struggle. It's not necessarily bad doubt. You know there's a difference, right? There can be good doubt. There can also be very bad doubt. There can be bad doubt that leads to idolatry. 
like the golden calf. Like the Israelites looking up the mountain at Sinai and saying, I don't know if I want that God. That God's scary, Aaron. Can you make us a more user-friendly God? Can you make us something that we can manipulate, that we can relate to? You know, like the gods we had back in Egypt. Can you make us something that we can just get what we want and not be so afraid of? You see, their doubt is leading them to tweak God, to change God, leading them away from the true God to false gods. That's bad doubt. There can also be bad doubt that leads to rebellion or sometimes even covers up rebellion. Think of Jonah, for example. It's a great example of this. When he hears God's plans with the Ninevites, he's like, no, no, no. I don't think so. This is a terrible plan, God. This is way more than they deserve. You're way too gracious for me. The Ninevites don't deserve another chance. They deserve to be burned up, and that's it. And so Jonah just turns and runs, goes the complete opposite direction, and God has to take him back with a fish and spit him out on shore to make it happen. You see, Jonah's shaking his fist in God's face. His doubt is leading to rebellion, saying, Why, Lord? How dare you, Lord? I don't see any of that doubt in Abram here. He's not saying, why, Lord, or see you, Lord, I'm out of here. Abram's saying, why, God? I don't understand, God. How much longer, God? Help me, God. Big difference, huh? Between why, God, and why? Help me, God. I think this is honest, good doubt. The reason I think that is because it leads to faith. He's bringing his doubts to the Lord like we see happening over and over again in the Psalms. In all these laments, they're wrestling with the promises of God, and they're bringing it to God in prayer, going to God for hope and peace and for faith. You need to know, too, this is a normal part of the Christian life. It's part of the process that God uses to grow us. It's part of how we become more like Jesus. But we need to be careful, though, too. It's not the goal of the process. Struggle's not all that the Christian life is about. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is not just to be raw and real and authentic and just struggle and be angry and doubt all the time and never to arrive at faith. I've heard Christians say things and act like doubt is a virtue. Anger towards God is a virtue because you're being real. I even heard one time, Chad and I were in a meeting with a pastor praying for another pastor. And this pastor prayed this prayer. He said that this pastor who was struggling would have the freedom to be angry with God and even to curse God. Chad and I, we looked at each other like, did we just hear that rightly? I didn't say anything, but afterwards I thought I should have stood up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know he kills people, right? He wipes people out for way less than what you're asking for right there. Have some respect and reverence. That's not what the Christian life is about, and that's not what this passage is inviting us to do. This passage is not an invitation to stay angry or stay in despair or stay in doubt and frustration with God. But it is an invitation to bring your doubt to God, to bring your struggles to God on the way to faith so that you arrive at faith and confidence in the Lord. That's the goal of this. And look, Abram had a lot of good reasons to doubt here, doesn't he? So do we most of the time. But he never has sufficient reasons to lose hope. 
in light of who God is. You know, you might be there right now as well. You might have a lot of reasons, worldly reasons, to doubt the Lord, to doubt if he's really good to you, or if he's really faithful, or if he's really going to keep his word. If you were to make kind of a pros and cons list, I think I've used this illustration before, but it's worth it. If you were to make a doubt and trust him list, on your doubt side, you might have 50, 100, 1,000 reasons to doubt God. Sometimes, from a worldly perspective, all you have on the trust him side is that he's God. And that's it. And that's enough. Because he's Abram's God. He's the God who is our shield and our reward. The same God who made us and knows us and loves us. The same God who sent his son to keep his word and lay down his life for us. And who promises to bless us in his son, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, we have more than enough reasons to trust Abram's God, to trust our God, no matter our circumstances, no matter our struggle, because he who promised is faithful. We've seen God declare his name, and we've also seen Abram's doubt. Let's see how God now responds. How does he respond to Abram's doubt? Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4, and God puts on this incredible display of his promise. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. That's Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. What's amazing to me is God already said this multiple times. He's just repeating himself again. He's like saying, okay, Abram, I've gone over this before, but let me just go over it one more time. Let me show you one more time. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will make a great nation from you, Abram. From you, not from Eliezer of Damascus, not from someone in your house. From you, your offspring will inherit the land. Your offspring, Abram, will be like the dust of the earth. Oh, I know it seems impossible to you, Abram, but trust me, I've got this. (laughs) I can and I am able to keep this word and I will keep my promise. You know what? This should settle it for Abram. This should settle it for us, for God to reaffirm his word again. But this is the incredible mercy and grace of God. He doesn't stop at words. He goes beyond words to display these promises as well. In our lives and in Abram's life here. Verse 5. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram, this is where it's headed. This is the promise right here. Look at this. This is an example of what I'm going to do. And I love this verse. I think this is a wonderful reminder to Abram, a patient, even a little bit of a push against his pride. To say, look, Abram, I'm in charge. Abram, come out here for a second. Go ahead and count the stars for me. You can't count them, can you? Well, you know what? That's why we're not depending on you to accomplish this promise. It's almost as if God is saying, you know what, Abram? I am able to count these stars because I made them. I sustained them. In fact, I brought those stars into existence from nothing. And they display my glory Every single night. 
Abram, if I can do that, do you think it'll be hard for me to give you and Sarah a baby? If I'm the God of the stars, I can do whatever I want. That's what God is saying here. You see the incredible kindness and patience of God here in condescending to Abram. He's condescending to him, giving him pictures to help him understand. Imagine a father bending down to help his child understand. It's like, I know you're having trouble believing these words. You're having trouble understanding the words I'm trying to say, so let me draw you a picture. Let me show you what I'm trying to say. He gives him a covenant word, then he follows it with a covenant sign. He gives him a verbal declaration of his promise, then he gives him a visual demonstration of his promise. I hope those words are sounding familiar, because what we have here is God giving Abram a word and a sacrament. The stars are basically sacramental to Abram here. God restates his promise, but then he gives him a covenant sign as help to have Abram understand the promises, to move him from fear to faith. And that's what the Lord's table and the sacraments are. They're helps. Calvin says they're helps to support, encourage, and nourish our faith. God gives us help as well, doesn't he? In the Lord's table, in baptisms. We had seven different images of help last week of God displaying his covenant promises of who we are in Christ and the saving work of Christ and our union with Christ. Every time you see a baptism, every time you come to the Lord's table, it's the Lord stooping down to you to give you a picture like he gives to Abram in the stars here, drawing pictures to help you understand and say, this is my plan. This is what I've done for you. You can trust me. Why does God do this? He knows we need it. He knows we're weak, sinful, and fickle people. He knows we need to hear the promises and see the promises, not just once or twice. Jesus doesn't say, hey, take some bread, take some wine, take it once or twice, you get the gist, and then move on. Whenever you get together, take communion. The Lord knows we need it again and again And again, week after week, month after month, we need these pictures of the gospel and the word from God to persevere in faith. And that's exactly what happens to Abram. Look at verse 6. One of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. And he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. This is the first time this word shows up in the Bible. Not the last, for sure. This chapter is a first for many things. But this word belief is a wonderful word. It means he had faith. He trusted. He stands firm. It's actually used to describe the temple down the road, the pillars in the temple, the concrete firm temples. St. Abram is standing firm on the promises that he sees and that he heard. It's almost as if Abram's saying amen here. I don't know if he said amen. He probably didn't. But that's the picture here. This word's actually where we get the word amen from. In many ways. And this is not the first time that Abram believed. He's been believing. I think you can translate this verse. He had believed. So he sees the stars and he keeps on believing the promises. 
You know, historically, theologians have talked about this faith, this belief, and talked about what it is. And they said it really has three parts. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, it's acquiring the information, knowing the facts about God. And then assent, recognizing that those are right. Those are true. And then that last important step, it's trust. Leaning into these truths, relying on these truths, living by these truths. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 14 describes it beautifully like this. It says, the principal acts of saving faith, what Abram's doing here, is accepting, receiving, and resting. There's your knowledge, assent, and trust. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification. Don't you see Abram doing that here? Recognizing, even in the midst of his fears and doubts, no, God is with me. And God is for me. And he will keep these words to the end. And then God says something shocking. Something we don't expect. Look at verse 6, the end of verse 6. And he counted it, his faith, to him as righteousness. He reckoned him righteous. This counted, this imputed, this transfer language talks about transferring that righteousness like a bank account in some ways. Transferring it to Abram, this sinner, even though he doesn't deserve it because of his faith. Now we need to be careful here. It's not that his faith is his righteousness. It's not that his faith is somehow deserving of this or it's this meritorious cause or ground of his righteousness. God's not saying, Abram, you're a really sinful guy. You've messed up, and you're going to mess up more. But you know what? You have faith. And your faith is so strong, I'm just going to give you righteousness because your faith is worthy of it. That's not what's going on here at all. This faith, this belief, is the instrumental cause of his righteousness. We know what instruments are, right? They don't play themselves. They need an, an act upon them. It's, an, it's a tool like a mechanic's tool or a a chisel in the hand of a sculptor. It's a tool. This faith is a tool or an instrument of God to declare us righteous. That's all that justification means. That's what we see happening here. And you know, the beautiful thing is the quality of faith, the consistency of faith, and the amount of faith is not what makes it work. It's the object of faith, what really matters. And the object of faith is God. The one who justifies faith is just opening our hands to receive all that God has done for us. And even that is a gift from God in Ephesians 2.8. That's what we see happening here. This verse, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful picture of how you and I are saved. How we're justified and declared righteous by faith. That's why Paul comes back to this a lot in Romans 4, which Jason read earlier. And even in Galatians chapter 3. And in those chapters, Paul is arguing that Abram is declared righteous by faith and not by all the works. He's saying, look, in Genesis 15, it's not the works that made him righteous. It's not his circumcision. That happens in chapter 17. That hasn't happened yet. It's not him offering up Isaac in chapter 22. That hasn't happened yet. There's no works that God says, okay, you've done enough. Here's your righteousness. It's by faith, through faith alone. That's what Genesis 15, 6 is about. That's why Paul says, Romans 4, 2, For if Abram was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does Scripture say? And here's Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. But listen, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's what we see God do here, justify the ungodly. Galatians 3.6, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abram. It's those of faith who are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. You see what God is doing? What Paul is doing here? He's saying Genesis 15 is the picture of how we're all saved. All of us look to Christ like Abram did here. All of us are saved by the finished work of Christ. That is our only hope. And you might look at that and say, well, how can God do that? If he's really holy and righteous, how can he just give righteousness to someone that's as ungodly as me and you and Abram? And that's where there's this glorious exchange in the gospel. Because we don't deserve the righteousness we're given by faith. What happens by faith, all of our righteousness is transferred, is accounted to Christ, and he pays for it on the cross. And all of his righteousness is given to sinners like us. It doesn't depend on us at all. All we do is receive it by faith. I don't know about you, but the more I reflect on this, the more I think about it, I am so thankful my salvation doesn't depend on me at all. It doesn't depend on the strength of my faith or the consistency of my faith. It doesn't depend on some righteousness I can build up in myself or one day the righteousness I have. It depends only on the righteousness of Christ. He is our righteousness. And that's glorious news because our good works can't make that righteousness any better. And our sin can't diminish Christ's righteousness in any way. It's ours in him by faith. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling this morning, if you're wrestling with fear and doubt and despair, remember God is your shield. Christ is your exceedingly great reward. That's all we need. That's all we'll ever need. As Samuel Rutherford says, our faith may hang by a thread, but it's a thread of Christ spinning. We know he will be faithful to the end. So let's pray that God would help us to trust him. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this wonderful picture of your ministry, your care and compassion and patience with Abram. I pray, Lord, for your saints, your sheep in this church, that you would comfort us, reminding us that this is how you love us, how you already have loved us in sending your son, and how you continue to have your son minister to us, draw near to us through the word and sacrament to care for us and build our faith. Help us persevere in faith. Lord, when we're doubting, when we're struggling, help us to bring it to you and help us to trust you knowing you will always be with us and for us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.